This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Welcome back to our Cornerstone U class on Scripture, Words of Life. This is uh, our second week uh, of doing this, and we'll, we'll do four weeks of this, so we'll spill over into the first Sunday in October. Uh, to get through what we need to get through. So thank you for being here again this morning. Let me pray for us and we will jump in. Father, we are thankful to you this morning again for your new mercies that you give us every morning that we don't deserve. Lord, you have awakened us this morning so that we might know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to learn from you. Help us to taste and see that you are good this morning. And I pray that what we look at this morning from your word will give us a deeper love for your word and a deeper understanding of what we are doing when we come to Scripture to read. So please teach us, open our hearts and minds and eyes and shape us, Lord, and give us a deeper love for you and your word together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me begin just with a, a brief uh, summarizing statement of what we did last week, especially for maybe a few of you who were not here last week, but what I tried to show last week from Scripture itself, and I say that for a reason, my, my hope is not to simply present to you uh, thoughts about Scripture from just reason or uh, uh, our own ideas, but I want to ask, what does Scripture itself think about Scripture? And I think what we discovered last week is that Scripture is not simply a depository of knowledge. It's not simply a foundation for knowing things or learning things about God, but Scripture is an action of God by which He transforms us and by which He comes to be present with us. We saw that, that God's Word all throughout Scripture is uh, effective and powerful. When God speaks, things happen. His Word does not return to Him void. And if Scripture is the Word of God, then Scripture does the same. Scripture is the Word of God that causes us to be born again. And uh, Scripture is the Word of God that shapes us into the character of Jesus Christ. And when we read Scripture, we're not simply filling our heads with knowledge or learning things about God, but God is working in us and acting upon us and changing us and shaping us and making us alive through His living and active Word, as Hebrews says. But God also is coming to be present with us through His Word. God is encountering us, engaging with us. Uh, he is not somewhere out there, distant, while we're reading this book about that distant God. No, God is communing with us and communicating with us and being present with us through His Word, which is another thing we saw in Scripture. God engages with His people in covenant love 
And His Word is always what drives the covenants that He has with His people. Uh, Scripture is driven by covenants from start to finish. And a covenant is uh, something in which God initiates a loving relationship with His people and He guides them by His Word and He communicates with them by His Word and He engages with them by His Word. So, so God's words are not just words that He gives to us to instruct us, but they are part of His covenant love for us. Scripture is about... You've, probably, you've heard this covenant formula throughout Scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people. Scripture is all about this. God always rescues His people from their slavery, not just in Egypt, but their slavery to sin, and brings them into this covenant relationship of love with Himself. And He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And God operates in these covenants by His Word. Every time there's a covenant, it is driven by the words of God. When God calls Israel out of their slavery in Egypt to himself at Mount Sinai and says, I'm making you my treasured possession. I'm your God and you're my people. What he does is he gives them a good word to guide them. He expresses his authority to them through his word. He, uh, he expresses his love to them through his word. He makes promises to them through words. He binds himself to these words of promise. He say, I am your God. And I am speaking to you these words of promise, and I will, and these words will never fail. You know, as you read in Scripture, sometimes like in Joshua, not one good word of all that God spoke has failed. So, all that to say, the words of God are covenant words. They are words of love to us. And so when we come to Scripture, again, we're not simply coming to Scripture to gain knowledge about God. Well, coming to Scripture in order to be changed by God and worked on by God. And we're coming to Scripture in order to engage with God Himself, to commune with God, to uh, be present with Him. Now, I'm convinced, as I said last week, that these kinds of things in thinking about Scripture are, are often missed. They are things that we sometimes don't think about enough. And the pressure on us is often to, when we're thinking about Scripture, is uh, can you give me some methods for interpreting Scripture? Can you give me some processes, some steps to go through in interpreting Scripture or thinking about Scripture? And those kinds of things can be helpful. They can but I'm convinced that our greatest need as Christians right now, especially in the sort of context we live in, the context that's always asking for simple processes and simple steps, I'm convinced that our greatest need is not methods, but our greatest need actually is to learn these things, to humble ourselves under God as we engage in Scripture, to, to be changed and transformed by Him, through His Word, and to commune with Him in love through His Word. Our, our goal is not primarily here to master the text of Scripture with methods. Our goal instead is to be mastered by the God who speaks to us and communicates with us.
we come to Scripture, we should every time, in these terms, I'm humbling myself under the living God who acts upon me and who is present with me and who speaks to me as uh, one who loves me in covenant, who speaks to me as a father to his children. So, Scripture is a language of covenant love. We cry out, Abba, Father, as we engage with Scripture. Not simply, let's have some processes and methods to master the text by. So, Scripture is not simply an object of study, but it is an encounter with our covenant God. Again, I'm convinced that that is the greater need of the hour for us as God's people. Well, with that said, let me take a few steps forward. Last week, I started with uh, the beginning of Hebrews 1. And we, we stopped for a moment just to realize what a gift it is that God has revealed Himself to us. Hebrews 1 says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. That's a gift. The fathers were not in the dark, left to learn of God on their own or by their own resources. But God spoke to them at many times and in many ways. And then Hebrews 1 says, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, who is the radiance of His own glory. And you notice in Hebrews 1, that's the final step in the process. The climax of God's revelation of Himself to the world, the climax of God speaking to the world, is in the Son of God. In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, and you can't get better revelation of God than that, because His Son is the radiance of His own glory, and the exact representation of His being. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why... uh, Religions that come now claiming that there is a new revelation from Joseph Smith or whatever it might be, I think, fails on biblical grounds because the Bible thinks that God has given His final, most climactic, most clear revelation of Himself to the world through His Son when Jesus came. And so... Not only is there no need for new revelation, but to suggest that more is needed dishonors the the revelatory glory of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who reveals the Father to us. I want to show you this process that gets to us here, though, in, in thinking about Scripture in this way. Jesus is the climax of God's revelation of Himself. And I've mentioned this in previous classes, but in the Old Testament, you know, God reveals His glory to Moses in Exodus 33 and 34 when Moses asks Him, show me your glory. He wants to know more of who this God is because he's just seen God do some things that uh, are shocking to him. And, And God does. He reveals His glory to Moses in a sense, not His full glory because He says, I can't reveal my glory to you and you live to tell about it, but He... He says to Moses after he puts him in the cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand and passes by, he says uh, to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He says, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and sin, 
And in doing so, he's re revealing who he is as God, what kind of God he is, what his character, what his nature is. And that is understood to be the glory of God. God also, in that story of Moses, meets with Moses and his people uh, in the tabernacle that he uh, instructs Moses to, uh, to build, to put together. Right? So the glory of God filled the tabernacle at the end of the book of Exodus because God is present and revealing his glory to the people. And we know as well that, that God meets with Moses and the glory of God shines on the face of Moses as he comes down from the mountain. But what John tells us in John chapter 1 is that Jesus is a greater revelation of the glory of God than what happened in this episode with Moses. John chapter 1. Why don't you turn with me to John chapter 1, and I'm going to camp a bit in John today, because John has a lot to say to us about God revealing himself. John chapter 1. And some of you have heard me point this out before in previous classes that I've taught, uh, but it's important for our thinking about Scripture here, I believe, as well, so I'm going to take just a moment and remind us of this. But in John 1.14, it says, uh, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word for dwell is the verb form uh, of the noun for tabernacle. So it literally says, uh, The Word became flesh and tabernacle among us. It's, a, it's an illusion or a reminder of what God did in meeting with the people of Israel and declaring His glory or being present with Him in His glory to the people of Israel. So what John is saying to us here in verse 14 is that God is meeting with us not in a, a physical structure like the tabernacle, but now God is meeting with us in the person of His Son as a human being. God has come to be with us and shown His glory not simply by declaring it to Moses with these words, but by living. Uh, so this is revealing in a sense when we think about the Word of God, we're not simply dealing with, with abstract words and notions, but we're dealing with a personal God who comes to be present with His people. And any time we engage with Scripture, this is what we're, we're trying to do here, is not simply think of Scripture as an object to be studied, but as uh, a covenant word from a personal and loving God who's come to be present with us. But notice what John goes on to say here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So, another connector to that Exodus story. What Moses was asking to see was the glory of God. Now what we're seeing is God tabernacling among us, and we have seen His glory afresh and anew, and in a way that we never have before. And then the last little phrase there in verse 14 says, full of grace and truth, which is another way that John is connecting us to that Exodus story. Because God says, I'm a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And when John says full of grace and truth, it's his way of saying the glory of God that was revealed to Moses at Mount Sinai has come to be revealed to us in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is himself God, full of grace and truth. It's the same God, not a different God, but the same God revealing the same character to us. 
And then he goes on to say, verse 16, from, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, which, is, which fits well with the Exodus story as well. Because God had said to Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will have compassion to whom I will be compassionate. That's the essence of who he is as God, this gracious and compassionate, freely gracious and compassionate God. So when, when the Son of God comes to reveal his glory in the human flesh, then it's not surprising that what he reveals to us is full of grace and truth and grace upon grace. And then you go down to verse 17. Notice now John gets very explicit about his allusion to that Exodus story. He says the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. And that's what God said to Moses. You can't see me and live to tell about it. No one has ever seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side. That's this word, Jesus. He has made him known. So, the point to be made here, again, is this is just confirming what Hebrews 1 said. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our Father through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Not a prophet anymore, but a Son who is superior to Moses in every way. And what this Son has revealed to us in the flesh is the glory of God who is full of grace and truth. And He has given us grace upon grace. So Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God and the ultimate Word of God that we need to listen to. You know the story of the transfiguration when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John onto the mountain and God comes to be present with them there and, and uh, Peter and the others are speechless about this and the cloud comes to cover them and then as they look up they see only Jesus, right? And you may remember who was with them, who appeared there with them was Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Uh, probably because these are two of the greatest prophets from the Old Testament. Maybe the two considered by the, the people of Israel to be the greatest prophets and God gave his word to these prophets on mountains, you may remember. And here they're on a mountain again. Moses and Elijah, though, eventually disappear from the scene. And God the Father speaks, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So you notice what's happening here is the story is revealing to us that Moses and Elijah, as great as they were as prophets in one sense, they fade from the scene now because the Son of God is here. And this is the prophet about whom Moses was speaking in Deuteronomy 18. The prophet is going to arise after me and God is going to put his words in the mouth of this prophet and it is to him you shall listen. It may be interesting there to think that Moses doesn't say you should keep listening to me. He says it is to him you shall listen. This prophet will have the words of God like no other. And here God says, Moses and Elijah fade from the scene because this is my son. Listen to him. There is no more climactic revelation of the glory of God in the history of the world than the Son of God who is the radiance of the glory of God. You should listen to him. And you notice Jesus talks this way very often, doesn't he? That we should listen to him. The Great Commission <clears throat> Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Moses commanded. Is that right? No. <laughs> teaching them to observe all that I have commanded is what he says. And I think he says that because, not to denigrate Moses, but in order to say one better than Moses has come. And so teach them to observe all that I have commanded. The Sermon on the Mount is similar, isn't it? People of Israel came through the Red Sea. They wandered in the wilderness. And they came to a mountain where they received the Word of God. Jesus comes through the waters of baptism. And he goes up on a mountain to give the Word. And he finishes that Sermon on the Mount. By the way, he wanders in the wilderness after this, doesn't he, for 40 days. He's suggesting that uh, he is the new and better Israel, who's faithful where Israel was unfaithful. But he's also the prophet of God who speaks the Word of God. And when he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says that there's a wise and a foolish man. And the foolish man is the one who builds his house on the sand. And when the storms come, it destroys that house. There's a wise man who builds his house on a rock. And when the storms come, the house stands. And, and what differentiates the wise man from the foolish man? Well, what Jesus says is, is that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is the, is the wise man who builds his house on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is the foolish man. And I, there's more of this we could do, but what I'm, what I'm simply trying to say here is that Jesus Christ is the ultimate Word of God to us. And His Word is the ultimate law of God to us. And every, we, see, we see all the Word of God from start to finish through Him. Jesus Christ is the yes and amen, amen to all the promises of God in Scripture. And He is the one who enables us to see the purpose and the meaning of Scripture all throughout. And so we listen to Him. Now, let me say here um, first, how does Jesus Himself think about His words and about Scripture? Let me, let, while we're in John here, uh, look with me at John 15. John 15. Now, you're familiar with this passage because here John, uh, Jesus speaks about how it's necessary for us to abide in Him in order to bear fruit and to have life. And he says, uh, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So we need to abide in Jesus somehow. That's important for us. And then he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Now, the question is, how do we abide in Jesus? That's what... I want to ask, and if you look at verse 7, he goes some way to answering this question, doesn't he? He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my 
disciples. So here we have a little hint of what it is to abide in Jesus. It is to abide in the words of Jesus. The word of Jesus is our way to abide in Him, to abide in the vine, which is what we need to be doing. You know, in Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I think we can say from what the New Testament is teaching us that Jesus ultimately becomes the law for us. The law of Christ is what we're doing. And that's why Jesus says things like this. He's not pointing us backwards. He's pointing us to, to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate in the law of the Lord by delighting in Him and meditating on Him and by abiding in His words. That's how we ultimately now become like trees planted by streams of water. And he goes on to say here in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Notice again, we don't hear Jesus saying that you primarily need to abide in the commandments of Moses. Again, I'm not denigrating the commandments of Moses. They are good and right and holy, revealers of the character of God. But I simply think what Jesus is saying is someone better than Moses is here. A greater revelation of the Word of God is here. There's something about God coming in the flesh and speaking the words of God and living as the Word of God that should be the focus of our attention and of our meditation and of our abiding. We keep the commandments of Jesus. We abide in His love. We abide in Him. Now, while I'm on this uh, subject of Jesus for just a moment, let me just, uh, and while we're still in the Gospel of John, just say, uh, how, how did Jesus think about Scripture? Okay, we're going to pile this together in just a moment. But if you look in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 34 John 10, verse 34, it says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. Verse 35, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came. So I want you to note this for just a minute, that Jesus here speaks of the scriptures as the word of God. You notice that? And I, I point that out here because there are many uh, in our day who who want to suggest that we can't say that the Scriptures are the Word of God. Jesus is the ultimate Word of God, and so we can't say the Scriptures are the Word of God. And there's a lot to go into there, which I won't do now. But I just want to note, for example, that when Jesus is talking about the Scriptures, he refers to the Scriptures as the Word of God. He thinks that the Scriptures are God's words, so to speak. And so we want, to, we want to learn our doctrine of Scripture from Jesus, don't we? We want to think about Scripture like Jesus thought about it. And he thought about Scripture as the Word of God. And then he says, if, if he called them gods to whom the Word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, uh, do you say of, of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, and so forth. So I'm only going here in order to say... Uh, we are, we are called to see Jesus as the ultimate revelation of God. We're called to look to Jesus as the ultimate um, communicator of the glory of God. And Jesus thinks of Scripture 
as the word of God which cannot be broken. Okay, so we need to, we need to think about how this is going to work. But at the very least, we're saying Jesus is the climactic revelation and Jesus thinks of Scripture as the word of God which cannot be broken. So how do these two things go together? And that's, that's kind of where I want to go next. So, when Jesus comes to reveal the glory of God to us, He reveals the glory of God both in deeds and words. His character, His life, reveals the glory of God, doesn't it? This is, this is um, one of the ways we know He's the Messiah in reflecting the character of God. Because He doesn't just say things, He does things. You know, it's always interesting, isn't it, that God never calls us to do anything that He doesn't do Himself first, right? So He says, don't be just hearers of the Word, but doers as well. And God is the ultimate doer of the Word, uh, always. So, so Jesus comes and His actions speak to us loudly about God's character. If God is full of grace and truth, then the actions of Jesus reveal to us the, the grace and truth or faithfulness of God. We know that God is a God of compassion, a God of, of mercy and grace, and of course that's what we see throughout the life of Jesus in his actions, isn't it? He is a, a, a Messiah who is relentlessly caring for those who are weak and um, uh, you know, when Christopher Ash was here preaching from Luke 4 uh, recently, I always loved that line in there when it says, they were amazed at the words of grace that were coming from his mouth. You know, so Jesus, he's, he's speaking words of grace, he's acting words of grace and truth and all that he does. And of course, the ultimate action of Jesus that reveals to us the grace and truth of God is his death for sinners. He is going to the cross. In fact, in the Gospel of John, uh, he says um, that, uh, let's see, I'm wondering if I should just, um, just put it this way, John 12, verse 27, when Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And notice what Jesus is saying there is he's talking about the hour of the cross, right? This is the whole purpose that he came, was to come to this hour, to go to the cross, and he says that it is in this action of going to the cross that he glorifies the Father. And so... The point I'm making is that there's no clearer revelation of the glory of God. There's no clearer revelation of the grace and truth of God than the cross. And so, I just make this point to say, it's not just the words of Jesus, but it's the actions of Jesus that reveal to us the character of God and the glory of God. So when we're seeking to, to know the Word of God, we come to the Word Himself, and we see in His actions who... God is. We should get our fill of all that Jesus does and, he's, and all that He says. I think this is why the Scriptures have come to us, for example, with four Gospels. It's not a systematic theology of who the Christ is. You notice that? 
not a systematic theology of who the Christ is, but it's four narratives, four stories about the coming of Jesus into a historical moment and the actions of Jesus and the way Jesus interacts with people. And I think we don't see the glory of God as clearly when we simply line out seven statements of Christology to learn. We learn the glory of God more clearly when we read the stories of Jesus coming into the world and how he interacts with people and what he does with his life and, of course, what he says with his words as well. Now, um, I talked about his actions. Let me say a, a word about his words. A couple of passages while we're still in the Gospel of John. John, uh, verse, John chapter 5, verse 19. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. There are his actions. Jesus says here, and it's not surprising given what we've already seen, my actions are the same as the actions of the Father. Because all I'm doing is what I've seen the Father do. Okay? So, in other words, if you watch my life, you're seeing the actions of God at work. Remember when Philip says that, just, just show us the Father who will believe. Jesus says, if you've, if you've been seeing me all this time, then you've been seeing the Father. Right? Now, John uh, 14, here he speaks about his words. John 14, verses 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is Jesus speaking. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Uh, so, again, Jesus uh, speaking about his words and his works being the words and works of the Father. And he says this in some more places as well. Uh, maybe one more text like this, John chapter 12, uh, verses 49 and 50. Jesus says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Now Jesus is saying it very specifically. All I'm saying to you is what the Father has given me to say. I'm speaking the words of the Father. So if we want to know the words of God, then we come to Jesus. And if we want to know the works of God, then we come to Jesus. Because he reveals the glory of God, the grace and truth of God. And I hope you can see why this is so important for our thinking about Scripture. Okay, when I, when I want to do a class on Scripture, there are lots of questions you have, I know. Uh, what kind of Bible translation should I use? Or what kinds of uh, interpretive principles should I have? And these kinds of things. And what I'm suggesting is that we often rush quickly to those kinds of things. And those are good and helpful things. But if we rush quickly to those things without thinking through what the Word of God really is, then we, we may carry out those kinds of problems and, or those kinds of principles in a way that we're not really engaging with the Word of God uh, 
as what it really is, which is so important. So that's why I'm taking time to do this, okay? I hope you won't begrudge me of that. And if you have specific questions as we go through, I'm happy to address all of those things. But like I said, I just felt these kinds of things are more the need of the hour than those kinds of things. Now, again, how does this get us to Scripture itself? Because what we've said so far is that the climax of Revelation is Jesus Christ and His words and works. And what does that have to do with Scripture? Well, I'm still on my way there. Look with me at um, John 17. John 17. And this is the, the prayer of Jesus. John 17, look at verse 8. Now Jesus is going to talk about his disciples, okay? The ones whom he has chosen. And he says in verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Now I want you to notice carefully what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is only speaking words to us and acting in such a way toward us uh, things that He has received from the Father, right? He's doing the works of the Father and He's speaking the words of the Father. Now what Jesus says to me about uh, saying here about His disciples is, I took the words from you, Father, and I passed them on to the disciples that I called to myself. So now we have a link the words of the Father, the words of the Son, now they have been passed on to the word as the words of the disciples. Okay? Now the point we're going to make here, and this has and this relates to how we think about Scripture, is this is why Hebrews 1.1 can say that the Son of God is how God has spoken to us in these last days, and that's it. The words of the disciples are not new words. Of revelation. The words of the disciples are simply receiving the glory of God in Jesus Christ and passing along that glory to others, you see. So the apostolic word, the apostolic gospel, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul speaks that way in 2 Corinthians. He preaches the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's simply passing on the glory of God to us. Now, verse 20 of Acts 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, that's the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So follow the link here. God reveals his glory in Jesus. God speaks his words and his works to the world through Jesus. Jesus passes the glory of those words and works on to these disciples, and then these disciples pass that glory from Jesus on to us. And the point here then is that when we, if we ask the question, how, what makes these writings of the New Testament the Word of God? Because when Jesus was talking about the Word of God in Scripture, he's thinking about the Old Testament. When Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, in 2 Timothy 3 and useful for correction and training and all that kind of thing and, and make us wise for salvation 
At that point, the New Testament had not been completed and gathered. He's thinking primarily, it seems, about the Old Testament scriptures. So why do we think of these New Testament writings as scriptures? The reason for that is because here we have an apostolic witness, an eyewitness, chosen by Jesus himself to take the glory that has been revealed in him, the words and works of the Father, revealing the grace and truth of God, passing them on to the disciples, and then those disciples pass them along to us. And Jesus uh, promises them that the Spirit of God will guide them to remember the things that he has spoken, to remember the things that he has done. So what the New Testament is, is not a new revelation. It is just revelation of the climax of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is the message of Jesus and the work of Jesus passed along through the disciples. Jesus never wrote a book that we know of, but he called his disciples as eyewitnesses to pass along his glory. Their job is not to come up with new things, but to take what they have received and to pass it along to us. That's what the New Testament is. Let me um, read for you a, a little line here from Timothy Ward again, because I think he says this well. He says, um, the, words, the words God the Father gave to God the Son have been given by the Son in ordinary human language to his disciples. Now those words are to be passed on through the words of the disciples. Therefore, everyone who never met the word incarnate directly, that would be us, right? But who hears the words of Christ from the disciples, nevertheless encounters the words of the Father and of Christ, who in those words presents them, present themselves to us as, as a covenant-making God. So, when we encounter the words of the disciples, we are encountering the Word of God in Christ and encountering God Himself through His Word, this active Word of God. Now, Jesus speaks as though, let me put it this way, in, in a few places in the, in the Gospels, Jesus speaks as though to reject the words of the apostles is to reject the words of Jesus. And to reject the words of Jesus is to reject the words of God. You see the link in the chain? Matthew, let me show you one place on this. Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15. And there are other places like this, okay? Uh, but for the sake of time, I'll just give you one. Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15. Jesus speaking here. He says, if anyone will not receive you, he's speaking to his disciples, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, Shake off the dust from your feet when you, have, when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So this is one place where Jesus is investing the authority of his own word uh, with his disciples so that to reject uh, the word of the apostles is to reject him. In fact, uh, over in verse 40 of the same chapter, this even makes it clearer. Verse 40, he says, Whoever receives you, receives me. 
That's key, isn't it? Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So, again, the point is, the New Testament writings are the words of the apostles, but they have authority because they are the words of Jesus. And those words of Jesus are the words of the Father. And if we reject the words of the apostles, we are rejecting the words of Jesus. And if we are rejecting the words of Jesus, then we are rejecting the words of God. And we can put that more positively, can't we? We can experience the work of God and the Word of God and the covenant love of God as we engage with the words of the apostles which they got from Jesus, which Jesus got from His Father. I'm trying to give you confidence here in what the Scriptures are from start to finish and what they are for us. So, there are no words of Christ without the apostolic word for us. This is how we do it. Because we're not going to see Jesus in the flesh, are we? We're not going to hear Him speak. But, we are going to hear Him speak. Because He has given us this word through the apostolic deposit. And the other New Testament writers think of it this way as, as well. And uh, just for the sake of time, let me just... Um, uh, there are some passages like 2 Timothy 2.2 and 2 Timothy 3.14 and Jude 3 where the, the disciples or the, the apostolic writers of the New Testament they think as though this is it. Okay, This is a, a deposit that has been given once for all that we are passing along to you. Not making up new things as John says in 1 John at the beginning, uh, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, what we have touched with our hands, this is what we are passing along to you. This is not our fanciful thoughts. The whole reason he says that at the beginning of 1 John is because there are teachers in the church, probably in Ephesus, that are teaching some false things that are captivating the attention of people in the church. But what John said is, look, here's why you should listen to what I'm saying. It's not because I'm special. It's not because I have great ideas. No, it's because I am an eyewitness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I saw Him with my own eyes. I, I heard Him with my own ears. I heard the Father speak from heaven and say, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. I touched Him with my own hands. I put my hands in His nail scars. This is why you should listen to me. Because I am taking this glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and I am passing along to you what I have seen, what I have heard, what I have experienced, what I have touched. Okay. Well, our time is up here, so let me say this uh, in closing. And I, wanna, um, I want to just think about this one more thing about the personal encounter with God in Scripture before we get to some of the more practical questions that I know many of you are wanting to ask about Scripture. What I have said so far, it highlights the fact that Scripture and the revelation of God is a Trinitarian uh, thing. The Father speaks to the world and He makes promises and he makes promises that he intends to keep, promises of covenant, grace, and love 
to us. And then the Father, in order to make good on those promises that He speaks, He sends His Son into the world to reveal His glory more clearly than anyone else. So the Son gets involved here with revealing God to us. And we've just been talking today about what that is. And what, what I want to take a few moments in at the beginning of next week is to say the Spirit now gets involved as well. The Spirit is involved both in ensuring that the Scriptures are true and right and trustworthy by inspiring the Scriptures as they are written. The Spirit is at work in the church when, when God pours out His Spirit on His church at Pentecost one of the many ways that the Spirit operates in the world is by preserving the Scriptures and by preserving the Church's attention and on and understanding of the Scriptures throughout all the years that we have. And the Spirit is at work right now in our own lives. So we're not coming to Scripture just, just to say uh, the Father has promised and the Son has revealed. We're coming to Scripture too knowing that the Spirit of God has inspired these words and the Spirit of God is at work in my own life right now as I am coming to read Scripture. So, the Scriptures are working on me, transforming me. The Scriptures are communicating to me the presence of the living God. And the Spirit of God is at work in my life and in my heart and mind as I am reading Scripture to accomplish these things in my life. And again, this just reveals to us the personal encounter that we have. When we read Scripture, we are not simply uh, engaging with an object by where, where we learn things in our heads, but we are communing with the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit, always, as we read the Scriptures together. So at the beginning of next week, I want to say just a few more things about that. And then we'll talk about some more of the practical questions, particularly some of the things we commonly think of uh, with the scriptures in the Christian life. How, what, um, how much authority should the scriptures have in the Christian life? How sufficient are the scriptures to do all that I need in, in the Christian life? How clear uh, uh, are the scriptures for me to understand? Some, some questions like this. Uh, and then we'll do some more practical things on the last week, okay? So, I've overshot my time, so why don't I just pray here and let you go, and if you have any specific questions that you want to ask about what we talked about today or other things, I'll be happy to say and talk with you about that. Thank you for your attentiveness. Father, thank you for this gift that you've given us of revealing yourself to us. And we're, we're just overwhelmed with thankfulness this morning that not only have you revealed yourself to us, but what you have revealed to us is more than we can fathom. You have revealed yourself to be a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and sin. And you've not only lobbed words at us about these things from afar, but you have come to be with us in the flesh. We have seen your grace and truth lived out in the life of Jesus, the works of Jesus, the, the words of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. What a gift that you have loved us this well. And Lord, you didn't stop there, but you uh, gave these eyewitnesses and uh, you 
gave your spirit to preserve the truth and we have the scriptures as a gift from you as a covenant word that we can commune with you and and be changed by you and I pray Lord that as we engage with scripture for the rest of our lives that we'll do it in such a way that we uh, commune with you and are changed by you and have fellowship with you and are mastered by you and humble ourselves under you we need your help by your spirit Lord to engage with scripture and with you in this way I pray these things in Christ's name Amen You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the Word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of His Word and Gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone U.